I'm Hannah. I'm Sheena. And I'm Lori. And this is Cemetery Row. Woohoo! Woo! Coming to you late because I was in Virginia. <laughs> and it's just been a stressful ass week. It's, it's been crazy. Both, I think, personally and then professionally. And then, God, y'all, the Mid South just blew up oh, this week. Oh, yeah. So yes. we've been dealing with some person back home mm-hmm. who decided to threaten to fly a plane into Walmart and terrify everyone that I know and love who lives there. Um, so, you know, <clears throat> terrorist. Um, yes. Yep. And then we had a woman in Memphis who was out jogging and apparently you just can't go jog anymore. You've uh, seen was, it on TikTok. You've it's seen it on everything. Over. It's yep. been everywhere. Yes. Um, she was kidnapped and raped and murdered. Bless and then we had some guy the other night in Memphis just driving around shooting random people and putting some of those on Facebook Live. So yeah. that was fun to like, I'm really tired of people with weapons running around threatening people that you know threatening communities that i love and that i'm a part of and that i have people who live there and me having to you know text people and be like okay they're over near this area are you okay like i'm sick of that can everyone calm down like yep life is really hard and i'm like how do they have the energy to just go do all this crazy stuff because i'm sorry i'm i just want to sleep (laughs) right and the it's scary like, part is Memphis is such a small city. So it's really so the small. fact that he was able to get to different parts and different neighborhoods yeah. so quickly, you know, that wouldn't happen in Chicago because Chicago no. is so huge. It would, right. be, yeah. you know, so that's what made this even more scary. But I do want to commend the people of Memphis. Well, the police department and our new chief, um, I gosh, I wish I could remember her name but she was absolutely fantastic in the press conferences very well put together a strong black woman um leading our memphis police um to find not only the offender who murdered the jogger eliza fletcher but also finding her so quickly yeah um and then I want to say probably close to a thousand people, if not more, gathered this last probably Friday. More. Yeah, um, to finish her run. They I finished that her was run. So beautiful. It was it was very beautiful, and it's sad that a woman can't go jogging and, and not be afraid of being abducted and yeah. murdered. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I mean, really, anywhere it could happen anywhere. And absolutely, I, think, I mean, we've talked about Sheena. You mentioned doing an episode where we talk about women who were doing things like going for a run. Women and- should be able to do by ourselves because you know we're all in our late thirties. I should be able to, you know, walk across the street to the McDonald's or go for a run. We are clearly living two different lives, me and Eliza. Um, but <laughs> you know, we should be able to do these things without the threat of being murdered and then yeah, people I, saying what were you doing out that early what were I, know. You doing I was going to get ice cream at 2 a.m because i can't fucking sleep mind <laughs> your what business. i was doing right and eliza just, was a I've teacher been... with two small kids that was the time that she could get her run in she was very fit she played soccer as a kid so that was her time for herself to you know, and I know people who run, they use it as an opportunity to clear their head, to think about what they Absolutely. And that is what she was doing. And she did it every day. And this 
asshat saw it was a crime of opportunity Ooh, here's yeah. a pretty little white girl it's 4 30 in the morning nobody's around well and it's yeah. like even if we do everything right there's still the opportunity to be victimized and they're still going to make it our fault yeah no matter what exactly yeah. and you know it's um you said memphis is a small city and and truly it is i've heard people say this and i didn't believe it until i really started living up here but it's the smallest big city ever everyone knows everyone somehow Absolutely. everyone mm-hmm. is connected and it blows my mind because it yeah, does yeah. feel like a small town just amplified and so it's amazing to me to see how all these connections and how so many different people I know were affected on different levels on all this because they knew her or they were nearby, you know, they live near one of the places where the guy randomly shot someone or whatever. Like there are so many connections and it's just so scary. And um, it's kind of like the plane thing. Like he starts yeah. out in Tupelo, you know, where I have a ton of friends who live that way. And then he goes North and it's like, I have friends who live up that way. And it's just, you know, it's just, so everything just feels, I feel like everyone I know has just been attacked lately or, or not attacked, but the threat of being attacked. And I'm, I'm tired. I'm kind of mm-hmm. like the Joyce Peterson, the newscaster from Memphis. who's was like, Memphis is tired. I'm like, yeah, I'm, me too. <laughs> me too absolutely it's been a week (laughs) well and that's the thing of like you know my parents worry with me being in Chicago you know because of the not deserved reputation we have you know amongst certain circles and because it's just it's the third largest city in the United States it's enormous and it's one of the biggest cities in the world but it's like you know this kind of shit can happen anywhere it can no place is safe you know i mean memphis has i'm not gonna say memphis's reputation is undeserved but i know <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean memphis has but i mean i was at my parents all week and you know me and mom were watching true crime because that's what we do and this shit happens in iowa and in indiana yeah. in little podunk towns in california and yep. little podunk we were watching one and I'm like, wait, did they just say? And it was my fucking hometown, yeah. which had a population of 3000. You know? right. And see, that's the thing too, is people want to make out like Memphis is so terrible and so violent. And I'm like, generally speaking, I've never felt that scared in Memphis. I, I don't understand. I a mean, lot of it to me is, with, yeah, a lot of it to me, honestly, is white people afraid of black people. It's Absolutely. really that, that simple. And I'm like, that's wildly racist and and not even true of a majority of the chicago yeah it's it's not even true of the majority of the the population you just have a few people who are terrible but but yeah i mean you think about the eliza fletcher case and it reminds me of a murder that took place in the 80s down in tupelo and that was the same thing of a woman out jogging some guy sees her and it's a crime of it's you know crime of opportunity and so i'm like this happens everywhere it's not just mm-hmm. yeah memphis so i'm not trying to talk smack on memphis i'm i'm talking smack on the whole mid south i love I need everybody to memphis. calm down like but, memphis is one of my favorite cities yes and i've, I've been too. to a few cities <clears throat> in my day and i love and it's like new orleans you know new orleans has a rap again not entirely undeserved but we traipsed all over that goddamn city at all yeah. hours when we definitely probably shouldn't have but you know <laughs> it just was what it was yeah well before we get started i do because i did look it up so the city of memphis police chief is 
Sarah Lynn C.J. Davis. She is the first female police chief in the 194 history of the Memphis Police Department. Oh, um, and again, she started in June, so she has yeah. had a lot going on. And like I said, she is a strong, powerful Black woman. She was commanding in her press conference. I'm so proud that we have a woman of color leading that department, um, and the way she is handled, um, specifically Eliza Fletcher. But I have not yeah. been really the the shooting the shootings i just i i tuned out i could not watch any more coverage after that yeah. but um they caught him quickly so they did they did good job God. good job um and then the Davis. kids that were making threats yep. yesterday they got one of them at least really quickly mm-hmm. um but yeah i just uh god it's been a week down here yep um so yeah um we are here to brighten your day we're gonna, gonna try, try. Ah, jinx <laughs> i owe you a coke <laughs> with um stories that were ripped from the headlines speaking of headlines based on a true story yeah and um i i promise my next story is not quite as heavy but it kind <laughs> of is so i'm gonna kick this episode off because this is how i came up with the idea of this episode um, and I pitched it to to the girls and they were like, okay, yeah, sure. Um, but I'm going to tell the true story of one of my favorite songs by a band that I love. And I was going through town one day and it came on the radio because thank God for Pearl Jam Radio on Sirius XM. It's literally <laughs> a station dedicated to Pearl Jam. So I love it a lot. Um, and I was rocking out to it like I always do. And then I'm like, you know, I know this is based on a true story, but I don't know the whole story. So this is what inspired me to have a rip from the headlines episode. And yeah, so it's depressing and, and trigger warning because it does deal with suicide. You already know what song I'm talking about. I'm sure <laughs> um, I, I'm not telling the whole story because I honestly couldn't deal with it. Um, it it's really heavy, but I do want to tell his story and encourage people to um, to get some help if they do need help. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. I've been there. I, like I said, yeah. I did a grippy sock vacay a couple yeah. years ago and there's yeah. no shame in it. Take care there of yourself. There is not at all. Not at all. It's just, it's one of those things that to me, sometimes I can read or, or listen to stories about suicide and kind of come out. Okay. And sometimes it, it just affects me in a really scary way. So yeah. I'm not going to go into super detail, but I'm mostly going to talk about the video because the video to me is what's really, um, has always made an impact on me yeah same here yeah so i know y'all have seen the video well i hope you have anyway uh so picture it uh september 1992 pearl jam releases the third single from the band's debut album 10 the song is called jeremy and in the chorus it repeats the phrase jeremy spoke in class today the single became a hit. It went gold. It was nominated for two Grammy Awards. And the visually stunning video was in heavy rotation on MTV. And that video won four MTV Music Video Awards, including Best Video of the Year. That's um, when MTV played videos. I was going to say, like, <laughs> I, I think, didn't they just have music video awards or something like a couple yeah, of weeks ago? Videos. And I was like, yeah. yeah. I was why, like, why do y'all do that? Like that's weird anyway okay <laughs> i could see youtube having video YouTube, yeah but not point. mtv literally also side note someone said oh this is the new um 
what they show on MTV. Like if you have cable and you have MTV, it's what they show. It's literally one show for hours. That's it. Mm -hmm. It's the same show over and over and over. I don't even know what it is. And like maybe an episode of Team Mom, but otherwise it's just some show. And yeah, it's some, Jesus. I don't know what it is, but I'm, I'm like, MTV, really? Like, right. did, did y'all just fall asleep at the wheel? Anyway, okay. So what inspired, back to the story, what inspired Pearl Jam's Eddie Vedder and Jeff Ament to write a song about a young man named Jeremy and what he did in class? Well, uh, the event that inspired the song occurred on January 8th, 1991. So about a, a year and a half before the song came out. And on that date, a 15-year-old student, Jeremy Wade Dell from Richardson, Texas, completed suicide in front of his English class. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail about it. Um, if you have seen the music video, you know what he did. He took a gun and completed suicide in front of his class um, before anyone could stop him. Um, so let's learn a little more about Jeremy. He was born in Kentucky on February 10th, 1975, and his mother, Wanda, gave her first and, as far as I can tell, only interview about him in 2018, um, and she said he was an artistic kid. He won lots of awards for his drawings, um, really good little artist. Like, she showed off some of the paintings and um, drawings he'd made. Um, one of them was this elephant that he did when he was seven, and it was really pretty. I'm like, that kid has some talent like it's really pretty um but after the tragedy of his death um some news outlets said he was a loner some of them said he had a couple of friends but basically he was your classic as people would say troubled young man but i hate right. to to say that because that just makes him sound like a stereotype um but i haven't been able to find a whole lot and and some of the stuff i did find i just like I said, the story got to me. Um, so, but he and his dad were in therapy together. Um, his parents divorced when he was younger. So I don't know how much, um, you know, was he upset because they had divorced? Was he upset with his dad for other reasons? I don't know. He was known to miss class. I don't know if he was just skipping or if he had legit like a medical issue. And that's right. why he was, but he had attempted to complete suicide before. So Eddie Vedder saw newspaper articles about Jeremy's death and that influenced him to write the song. And he wanted to make a song that would hopefully make a difference. So the first half of the song is basically about Jeremy. And that's where you get the lines about drawing pictures of him on mountaintops and things like that. And then the second half of the song or the second verse, um, Eddie Vedder is talking about picking on this kid and getting into fights that's not about jeremy that is about a kid eddie went to school with in san diego who did commit a school shooting and i didn't look into that because i don't want to give school shooters any more publicity but eddie vetter said he did remember picking on that kid and they got into fights so that's where you get the second verse from but really the entire song is mostly about jeremy from texas right now, this I did not know. There were actually two videos made for this song. Um, Eddie Vedder wanted photographer Chris Cafaro, I hope I'm saying that right, to direct a music video for 10 and told him he could pick any song he wanted to off the album. And he, he chose Jeremy. And the band had no plans to release that song as a single. But they were like, well, okay, yeah, make it. So most of the video is Pearl Jam performing. Um, Eddie Vedder has a, 
black band around his arm in mourning for the actual young man, Jeremy. And there are a couple of images of a teenage boy. And the last few images you see is a gun and then a couple of bullets. That's it. Like, it's a very simple video. And MTV actually rejected this. And instead, they accepted and aired the second version of the video made by Mark Pellington. And this is the iconic video we all know and love. Yeah. Um, I remember seeing this as a kid. I mean, I wasn't even 10 yet. And I was obsessed with this video, which that explains just why <laughs> I am who I am today. I mean, same. <laughs> um, it's Eddie Vedder and the band performing. But Eddie Vedder looks super creepy and super hot, in my opinion. He does the but, double face. I oh, yeah, it's, it's hot. I'm sorry. I just think he's so hot. Anyway, uh, but you also see a teenage boy who is being bullied and then acting out his rage in different ways. You see him drawing. You see him like throwing you know kind of making all these movements that feel very Jerky. you can tell it's it's a kid kind of acting out his rage and in the last moments of the video when this aired in the 90s you saw him enter the classroom but you didn't see what he did you saw him pull something out of his pocket and then you see his classmates frozen in fear and covered in blood and I remember as a kid asking my mom like what happened because I didn't get right. it and um but now if you look up the video on YouTube, excuse me, you see him put a gun in his mouth and Pearl Jam released the unedited version of the video on YouTube on June 5th, 2020 to wow. mark National Gun Violence Awareness Day. So when you look this video up, you will see the unedited version. Because I originally thought like, and I think I wasn't the only one who thought that he had like shot his classmates. Everyone thought that. Yeah. Everyone thought that. So there was a big deal about that too. Um, so um, as you can imagine, I mean, even just the implied violence there was considered very controversial. But as I said earlier, the song and the video were huge hits. Uh, the videos were in heavy rotation until 1999, and that's yeah. when MTV and VH1 stopped airing the video so frequently because that's when Columbine happened. I was about to be like, Sheena, what happened in 99? That exactly yeah. the rest of our high school careers. Exactly. <laughs> um, which makes sense, but I mean, I... I don't know. I just, I feel like I have this video committed to memory. Like I know oh, it's so absolutely. well. I saw it so many times. And I mean, I have, you know, sought it out in the YouTube era because I just like the video, even though it is, it's scary, but I love the song. I love Pearl Jam. I'm sorry. I guess I'm weird. Um, by the way, just a very sad aside. Um, Trevor Wilson starred as Jeremy in the second music video in the one that we all know and love. This was Trevor's only acting role. He was 12 at the time. And unfortunately he died at the age of 36 in 2016 while swimming in Puerto Rico. Oh, bless his yeah. heart. that makes me very sad because I thought he did a really great job. Absolutely. And, uh, because of, of all the hullabaloo and everything, after this video, Pearl Jam stopped making music videos. Um, they made one more in 1998 for Do the Evolution, but that is an animated video. Um, so this is what Eddie Vedder says about the song, and I thought this was really 
telling and it really makes it all come together because I think I never noticed this. And then I'm like, oh God, he's so true. Okay. So this is Eddie Vedder's quote. It came from a small paragraph in a paper, which means you kill yourself and you make a big old sacrifice and try to get your revenge that all you're going to end up with is a paragraph in a newspaper, 64 degrees and cloudy in a suburban neighborhood. That's at the beginning of the video. And that's the same thing in the end. It does nothing nothing changes the world goes on and you're gone the best revenge is to live on and prove yourself be stronger than those people and then you can come back yeah which i never noticed that but he it does list the the weather at the beginning and at the end kind of showing this kid did this it didn't change anything yeah so jeremy is buried at wrestling memorial park in dallas texas he has a really simple but lovely little headstone with his name and dates on it um according to find a grave the cemetery was hit uh, by a tornado in 2019 and a part of the cemetery got some pretty good damage like lots of trees down um but he's actually there with a lot of several other famous people that Mm. i was surprised to learn about um one of my favorite country singers ray price what up, Ray Price? I'm probably the only person listening to this who's like, yes, Ray Price. But he's buried there. Boston legal actor Justin Mintel, Star Trek actor Bruce Hyde, and the musician who wrote Jackson 5's uh, hit, I'll Be There, Willie Hutch. Oh. Um, and then there are several famous professional sports people, you know, baseball, football, all that. Sports ball. Sports ball, yeah. I, I didn't know who any of them were, but I'm sure someone cares. Um, But I'm going to end this very sad story with a quote from his mother, from Jeremy's mother, Wanda, that she said in 2018, the day of his death does not define his life. Oh, yeah. So rest in peace, Jeremy. I hope he found the peace peace. and solace that he wanted in life. Bless his heart. So, yeah, if you, uh, it's a heavy song and, you know, all that, but, um, I don't, I still love it. I just, I love Pearl Jam, but if you are, if you're struggling and God knows everyone is because this world is insane, you know, you can now text or dial nine, eight, eight, if you need some help. Um, and yeah, just look up suicide prevention or look up some crisis text lines or anything like that. If you need some help, because just talk to somebody. Just talk like, to somebody because don't try to do it by yourself. Like, no, that is, it's a big burden. It's a huge thing to carry and yeah. more people have gone through it than you think. Yes. And it's just like Eddie Vedder says, you do it. And you know what? I hate to say it. The world doesn't stop turning, but if you no. stay here, you can make a difference and you can do something and you can help other people. You can, you will make a difference by staying here. Absolutely. So don't just let all the, don't let these terrible people win. Absolutely. Live for spite if for nothing else. <laughs> for nothing else, spite. That's kind of my whole thing sometimes is I'm like, I just, I hate a lot of people and I just, <laughs> I don't hate people, but you know what I mean? I'm yeah, like, no, yeah. people suck. Yeah, they We do. all have at least one motherfucker we want to outlive. Okay. Yes, yes for yes. sure. Okay. I don't remember who goes next, but someone goes me, next. me. So. <laughs> I'll try to lighten it a little bit. I mean, <laughs> it's 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 not a terrible story. So as the designated horse girl of Cemetery Row, I would be chastised by all my fellow equestrians if I didn't share the story as a part of our Rip from the Headlines episode. 
Hannah's mentioned it several times. And any horse-obsessed elder millennial worth their salt also wore out their VH tape copy of the 1991 Disney classic, Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken. Yes. Yes. I'm so excited. And while this movie was all sunshine and rainbows and hot Jake Ryan, a.k.a. Michael Shuffling, whatever his name was, (laughs) the true story of the diving horses was not always so bright and shiny. So today I'll be sharing the story of Sonora Webster Carver, who was portrayed by Gabrielle Anwar in that classic Disney film, and who became famous for diving horses off a 40-foot tower into an 11-foot deep swimming pool during the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and after a tragic accident, doing it blind for 11 years. So. Sonora Webster was born February 2nd, 1904 in Waycross, Georgia. The film kind of portrays her as being an orphan who's raised by a nasty aunt who hates her. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's none of that is accurate. Oh, good. Because that aunt was like public enemy number one when I was was a piece of shit. Also, if you haven't seen it, please pause go watch it. It's streaming on Disney plus and then come back. Cause you're not going to understand anything. If yeah. <laughs> you have if homework, you, yes, go watch this movie and then come back to us. Uh, yes, she was poor. Uh, she remember it because my, my main source for this is her 1961 book, a girl in five brave horses. Uh, she doesn't really have any negative memories of her childhood. Her mom was kind of kooky. Like she would move the family. She would find a listing for a new house and just move the family without telling anybody. Uh, there was no turning her over to foster care. No beloved family farm horse was sold. Um, although at one point she did offer to trade her baby brother for a neighbor's horse. That's fair. You know what? That's absolutely fair. I like that plan. Yeah, she had a pretty normal childhood for the most part in the South in the early 1900s. Very poor. Um, she was late to school a lot because she was looking at horses and just, <laughs> just yeah, she she winds up uh, dropping out of school and moving, I want to say, to Savannah, mm-hmm. living in a boarding house. And but did she punch the girl in class? No. Need to- Damn it. She did not punch the girl, but she did. The, the bag on her head was something that her mom did when she was little because she kept escaping the backyard, and, <laughs> like, quote unquote, running away. And so her mom put the bag on her head thinking, oh, well, she'll be too embarrassed. And she nope. still she climbed the fence and went and was playing with some neighbor kids. She did cut all her hair off. Um mm. But it was just like her mom was just upset at her. There was no, you know, <laughs> it was just she wanted that Bob that was popular in the 20s. Yeah. And it was her mom who came to the boarding house where she was living with the ad about the Diving Horse Act. Oh, it was not. Sonora was 19. She was living and working in Savannah. Her mom thought, oh, this job is going to be perfect for you. After all, Sonora <laughs> loved horses. She could swim and dive. And she had a desire to travel, which were the three requirements listed right. in the posting. And at first she's like, no, I'm not going to go see him because like they were going to meet at a hotel the next day. But her mother continued to badger her about it. So she said, okay. So in the movie, Sonora finds the ad, rips it out, runs away after her aunt tells her, I'm turning you over to the state. Yes. <laughs> uh, and she begs the owner of the act, Dr. William Frank Carver, to allow her to join and be his diving girl. Uh, and she finally convinces him, okay, you can join us, but you're going to be a groom. You're not going to be a diving girl. 
and while searching the grounds for Doc Carver, she comes across a very handsome man being accused <laughs> of cheating at cards. Uh, and later we learn that that hunk of a man is Doc's son, Al, and he is a bit of a rapscallion, a wild man. <laughs> anyway, I'm just setting the scene for what happens in the film so that I can go in and tell you what actually happened. So love it. In, in reality, she met with Doc Carver. She met with Al and she met with Lorena who is not mentioned at all in the movie, but was Doc Carver's daughter, who was mm. the girl that dove the horses. Hmm. She was the yeah, because the main diving girl, you hate her in the movie. She's right, a yeah. trick-ass bitch in the movie. And she, yep. there, there was a Marie who worked with him briefly, but the Marie that you see in the movie not did not exist. That was not, hmm. she was made up. My whole childhood is a lie. I know. <laughs> Well, so Lorena had injured herself. And so they needed somebody to kind of pick up the slack because Lorena was unable to ride. Uh, there was a very cordial conversation. Doc Carver offered her the job, but she turned it down. She's like, yeah, I just was here to appease my mom. I'm not interested. <laughs> but that night she went and saw the show at the fair and was blown away by the performance. As she recalled in her book, quote, as emphatically as I had not wished to learn to ride a diving horse, I now wish to learn. <laughs> the fact was that I had fallen in love simply and completely. Aww. So she gets up the next day and she's like, I'm going. And apparently that was the day they were leaving. So she rushed to see him and Carver was like, yeah, okay, no, we're not giving <laughs> you the job. They left without her. And so she was just like depressed as just in her feelings. I can't believe I lost out on this opportunity. Three months later, she gets a letter saying, hey, if you're still interested, reply at this address. She did, but it was another three weeks before Doc Carver showed up and said, okay, come on, pack your shit. You're going with mm -hmm. us. And he took her to Florida where she began her training. Um, so back to the film. In the film, she only gets a chance to ride after the star of the show, Marie, who, as we just mentioned, was non-existent, uh, is injured trying to ride a new diving horse that Al wins in a poker game. This horse, who Sonora names Lightning after the farm horse that she lost back home, is a key part of her story, but we're going to get back to him later because Lightning, as you see in the film, did not exist either. Damn it! He is kind of a combination of a couple of okay. horses. Interesting. Marie becomes Sonora's rival, both as diving girl and as the love interest to Al. Uh-oh. And as I mentioned, this iteration of Marie did not exist and so two diving girls were needed because there were two versions of the show. One was Doc Carver. So he needed a girl to go with him. And the other was Al. So Al always was a part of the show, always was the announcer. And he would travel to the other bookings they had with the other diving girl. So Sonora would travel with Doc Carver and then Lorena would travel with Al. And they had different horses to go with each group. Uh, so now I'll talk a little bit about the, the true relationship between Al and Doc Carver. In the film, it's very tense. They hate each other. They fight. And they got along okay in real life. You know, they did. Doc Carver was very controlling, very, you know, o OCD about things are done his way or the highway. And, you know, they did argue. They did. They, they had very similar personalities. But they did not get into a physical art altercation. Al never left. He did run away at one point in his childhood. He was 11 and he ran <laughs> away and, and he joined the circus. He joined you the do that back he then. He ran Love away it. and joined the fucking circus. Uh, That's awesome. 
you know, and so- Sonora, when the film came out, was not happy with how that was. I mean, she wasn't happy with really much of the film because she didn't view it as being accurate. But she was really upset at the uh, the fight scene between the two men because she said that could not be further from the truth. Um, so Doc Carver was a very famous sharpshooter in the Wild West shows, and he was good friends with Buffalo Bill Cody and palled around with Wild Bill Hickok, which just blows my mind. Uh, he hunted Buffalo and the indigenous people even gave him the moniker evil spirit because Ooh. of just how deadly he was with a gun. He became so popular as a sharpshooter that there was a live action play written about him and he played himself in the play. Cool. And during the performance, there was a scene in which a bridge collapses and the horse and Doc Carver fall. Um, they learned quickly that they would keep having to replace the horse because once a horse had to do the stunt, which apparently was not dangerous to them, uh, the horse would not go over the bridge again. <laughs> the horse is like, fuck smart. You. Yes. But he had this one horse named King that like enjoyed diving into the water. And so that was what inspired him. Hey, let me train diving horses. And so at first he trained the horses to dive riderless off of a 40 to 60 foot tower but he eventually did add in the element of a rider and the horse would run up a platform. The girl would mount. And then it seems like the horse would like hesitate and push itself off. It wouldn't just jump off of the tower. It would like push mm-hmm. and dive into a man-made pool that was 11 feet deep. Now don't ask me how he determined that that was the right depth. I don't want to see that trial and error. Right. But somehow <laughs> he figured, okay, that's deep enough that the horse can hit the water accelerate to the bottom push themselves up and out so that is what what was required at every single show and it cost uh at the time and i didn't do the the transition of money but it's a shit ton because back in the 20s it cost about a thousand dollars to put oh yeah it's gonna be a lot of money so back to sonora after her ground training was complete and yes it's very similar to the movie she gets the shit beat out of her she falls bruised battered um she began doing dives off of the 12 foot tower that they had to do training dives um and it was because carver's number one rule is you don't come off this horse you stay with that horse in the water um you swim out on the horse's back and yes you you fucking bow You, you you know and so there was a little argument between them about how she would bow after um and so now to the fun part the horses the horses so in the Absolutely. film there's two there's red lips and then lightning which is the gray that is her horse that is one in the poker match he is wild and difficult and is much like sonora and her personality um so as i mentioned earlier there were two shows and there were several horses used the first horse sonora Doe, was a thoroughbred named Cladawa. He had been one of the first horses that Carver trained to dive. He was dependable, and she remembered him as, quote, the greatest showman of all the diving horses I have ever known, In quote. And he would be her main mount in the early days. Her second was Judas, a gray gelding with an everyman-for-himself attitude. He had, <laughs> quote, the impersonal curiosity of a bystander bystander so completely <laughs> cold-blooded that i had the feeling he would have stood by and watched any crime without turning a hair and his name was judas <laughs> yes. of course he's like i don't know get fucked exactly exactly and then the third was a white mare named snow who they eventually had to retire because she got too fat <laughs> oh gosh oh, justice for same snow. girl 
Yes. Yes. Can I retire? Cause I, I'm too fat. Right. And so the other two horses that traveled with Alan Lorena that season were a gelding named John the Baptist who <laughs> I'm she, seeing a theme here. Yeah, yeah. She remembered him because he would do all these maneuvers to try to get the rider off when he hit the pool. So <laughs> it took a lot of talent to stay with him. And then finally there was lightning a gray mare that was also known as the Duchess of Lightning. And that was the horse that she witnessed diving that very first night when she was mm. watching the show. Oh, yeah. Cool. She was very friendly and she would go on to become her go-to mount um, in the early days of the show. And now trigger warning of all trigger warnings. Oh dear. As I mentioned earlier, the two shows would travel separately with one group taking Clatawa, Snow, and Judas, and the other traveling with Lightning and John. During one booking, Alan Lorena had Lightning and John and were pairing to begin a run in California. But at the time, the horses wouldn't be diving into a pool. They would be diving into the ocean. Oh, Jesus. Al knew there was risk involved, so he decided to do trial dives with the two horses. Um, John the Baptist did great. He struggled a little getting out because of the surf. You know, it was Mm -hmm. a little disconcerting. Lightning began became disoriented she was scared mm. she was oh, trying no. to find a different way out she began swimming out to sea oh, no. men from the carnival jumped into boats to try to f- get to her and guide her back and she was just she was a horse there they are flight animals they are prey yeah. animals right he did not go the direction she was supposed to and she wound up drowning oh, oh. This was the last show they would ever do that required horses to dive into the ocean. Thank yeah. God. Um, the death of lightning did seem to be kind of the beginning of the end for Doc Carver. Sonora recounted, quote, from that moment on, life seemed to go out of him as if it were visibly ebbing. He was 87 by then, and it was time for him to be tired, but it was more than a physical tiredness. It was a weariness of the heart. Yeah, I can't imagine. Yeah. He loved those horses. They yeah. Was, he loved babies. Them. Yeah. Yes. Um, so he took a trip with Sonora to Yosemite in 1927, and that's when he began experiencing the symptoms of heart failure. He did not die peacefully under a tree. Mm. Um but he did pass away shortly after that trip of heart failure on August 31st, 1927. He was, he was sent back to his hometown of Winslow, Illinois, where he was buried oh. uh, next to his mother and his baby sister um, at Rock Lily Cemetery. Oh, so I'll, I'll discuss his monument later because he has a really cool one. Um, so after his death, like the number one thing that he demanded was that you do not cancel any contracts. Um, and so they were in need of another diving girl. Lorena was like, look, I can't fucking do two jobs. I can't dive and announce and manage this act. So they actually got uh, Sonora's sister, Arnett, who is mentioned briefly yeah. in the movie. She comes to dive. Now, uh, she wasn't very good at it. Sometimes she would do great. And sometimes she would do poorly. Um, so she only dove with them that season. And then they said, let's find something else for you to do because it's too risky. We don't want you to <laughs> right. hurt yourself. Um, and so Alan Snore traveled together and they kind of just fell in love. It wasn't romantic. And I'm trying to get pictures. There are no pictures anywhere I can find of Al Carver. Hmm. I know that in the original printing of the book, there are lots of pictures. And so I ordered a copy off Amazon 
and it did not have pictures. It was a reprint. <gasps> oh no! And Bullshit. So I ordered one off eBay that is supposed to arrive in the next few days. And hopefully I got one with pictures because it did have pictures of Al because he was not handsome. He was kind of short and frumpy and he was 20 years older than Sonora. So he was, he was like in his forties. Um, but they just were kind of one night he goes, Hey, you know, I love you. And he's like, we need to get married. And she's like, no, I don't want to get married. I saw my parents. They weren't real happy. I don't want to do that. And he's like, yeah, you're being stupid. You're young. You're 25. And so they just, they they decide, okay, we're going to get married. They go to a courthouse and they get married. In fairness, 25 is pretty (laughs) stupid. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, and she's like afterwards, she's like, I don't even know if I love him or not, but she She loved him. She loved him. Nora. But, but I mean, she had no experience with men and boys, really. So, so now we can get into the horse that really inspired lightning. Al knew they were going to need to find a new horse because Clada was 30 years old. Oh, yeah. And some days they did four performances. That's too much for this old horse. The first one he picked out turned out to be a dud, but he was driving one day and he looked out his car and he sees this beautiful paint horse with blue eyes. And he's like, I got to have that horse. So he pulls in, talks to the owner and the owner's like, no, he's, he's crazy. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, I, I use him as my uh, uh, decoy. People see him, they want to come buy him. And then I convince them to buy one of my other horses. Uh, he had been sold numerous times and brought back al didn't care he's like this is my horse he got it and that horse was red lips okay justice for red lips yes so this horse he was quirky but sonora bonded with him um he became a star performer he really excelled at diving uh he took to it without issue um and his personality was crazy yeah his personality (laughs) really seemed to be the basis of lightning from the movie so i don't know why the movie version of Red Lips is kind of this asshole. Yeah, because he's not a great horse. Right, the... right. I mean, he was the horse that the incident occurred on. But, you know, anyway, so moving forward, they did begin. And, and that one of the things, you know, the movie, they struggle, you know, finding jobs. And that didn't really happen. Okay. Like they, they, because hmm. this all happened in the 20s. This was yeah. all going on in the twenties and it re- it was the thirties before the depression. And yeah. she never talks about how, you know, struggling during the great depression, right. like hmm. it was world war two that caused them to close the show, not right. the yeah. depression. So their contract with Atlantic city began in 1929 and ran through 1932. Uh, by that time, Arnett had retired. So there was no second act. Um, and Arnett actually came back, but she was doing like a water act because, you know, Atlantic City, there were all kinds of yeah. things going on. Um, and Sonora would alternate between Clatawa and Red Lips. Um, but the fateful ride in 1931 that cost her vision was aboard Red Lips. Mm. This wasn't their first dive in Atlantic City. Red Lips was not spooked by the band. She recalled that his dive deficient position was more of a straight nose dive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... There were multiple different types of diving that they would describe the horses doing, but this one she said was very hard to sit, stay on, and you had to position yourself correctly so you don't hurt yourself right. uh, entering the water. So instead of hitting the water with her head tucked and her eyes shut, she hit face first mm. with her eyes open. She felt a stinging sensation, but that was it. It didn't really hurt. And she continued diving for several weeks. She could tell something was off. It was kind of foggy. Um, she even said that it was like looking through a thick screen of smoke. She refused to see a doctor. She continued riding, but 
this was actually kind of smart. Cladawood was a dark horse and Red Lips was red and white. Mm-hmm. And she would ride Cladawood during the day because in the daylight, the dark horse was easier for her to make out. And then she oh. would ride Red Lips at night because she could see the white. That is smart. Um, yeah. Look at her. Yeah. You know, and she, but she was so secretive about it. And Al right. kept saying, you know, we need to go to the doctor. I'm not so sure about this. Uh, it got progressively worse. And finally, Al summoned the real Marie to come take over performances so Sonora could get checked out. Marie had been with Lorena first season. She was not very good. Uh, but she agreed to come and she was the only person they had. They didn't want to risk Arnett's safety. Uh, so they brought in Marie to take over. So now Sonora was allowed to go to an eye specialist who gave her some grim news. The impact from the initial incident had caused blood vessels in her eyes to burst. Ugh. And the continued impact of diving worsened the condition until her retinas had detached. Ugh. So, and one of the eyes was completely gone. The other one, they were like, maybe we can save your vision. So she had to be forced to lie completely still for weeks on end. Like she couldn't get up to go to the bathroom. Oh my God. She had to be completely still. Uh, And she had three failed procedures. Oh man. She finally came to turn. Look, I'm not going to be able to see. And while she was in the hospital, Marie quits and she's like, fuck it. I have pneumonia. I'm done. Cause she was getting the shit beat out of her because I she imagine just bruised, battered. And I will say there were never really any serious injuries with the diving act. Um, you know, a couple of sprained ankles, some bruises, you know, maybe a, a broken bone here or there, right? Nothing life-threatening. There was an incident where a Hollywood, um, Stuntman begged Doc Carver. He's like, I want to do it. I want to do it. Please let me try. Please let me try. And finally, Carver relented and the guy did it and he didn't come back up and he had broken his neck. Oh, God. So, but that was, you know. Yeah. yeah. Again, that was that was a professional stuntman who right. thought he yeah. knew what he was doing. Right. Um, and so, Sonora thought about it and she's like, well, fuck, you know, Arnett is ambidextrous, but she favors her left hand. I trained her for from a right-handed perspective and as the left-handed person of the group it fucking sucks to be a left-handed person and have everybody try to teach you things right the right right and she's like so instead of having her like lean to the right and tuck her head let's have her lean to the left and tuck in when she dies right and that was all it was arnett was perfect oh well sweet yeah it's like okay um that's no problem yeah so (laughs) they were they were being taken care of um, so eventually Snore's like, fuck it. I'm tired. I don't have anything to do. I'm pissed off. I, you know, this is my passion. I'm going to dive again. And Al was okay with it. He said, you get clearance from your doctor and you can do it. We'll do right. it. It was not, you know, a fight. There wasn't, you know, her trying and training and, and failing. She, you know, she was like, yeah. I'm, Are I'm you telling it. me motorcycle man didn't exist? motorcycle man existed but he was not like it was just a guy that had an act like there was a motorcycle life is a lie he was not clifford (laughs) he was not the groom he was just a dude that is mentioned very briefly in her book that had the motorcycle i'm so upset yes very sad (laughs) um she was given permission to ride you wear a helmet with some protective goggles and oh i bet that looked cool as shit in the 30s Oh yeah. She, the, he, the doctor was yeah. like, yeah, if you think you can do it, you know, you are more than welcome to try. Uh, in her book, she said, quote, it was, is, uh, sorry, let me start over. It was as if I had lost an arm or a leg and gotten it back. 
It was as if I had found a part of myself that I never hoped to regain. So Matt, you know, for being somebody so fit and like, she was very much like, I have to do this because that personality, that strong personality Mm -hmm. and spending so much time with Doc Carver, she knew, you know, Right. I got to do this every time. And when she failed or did something wrong, she'd beat herself up about it. Yeah. Um, so she dove blind for five years before anybody knew that she couldn't see. Wow. Um, so during an interview, another reporter walked up and said, dude, I interviewed you yesterday. You can't see. And the, the guy that was interviewing her started asking her more about that. And she's like, no, I don't want people to know this. And yeah. the, the guy convinced her, Hey, you know, please, I think this is going to be important. And she goes, okay. He convinced her to talk about her being blind. And it was a full page spread in the paper the next day. And at wow. first she was pissed. She's like, this is I not told what you this, not to, yeah, that, you know, don't make such a big deal about this. But she started to receive letters from people that had disabilities that said her story was inspiring them to, to live life. Um, and she was asked to do like a fundraiser radio interview to raise money for training programs for blind people. So she realized that, oh, this is a big deal. Yeah. Um, the show continued for another six years until 1942, when an outbreak of World War II and the shortage of men and supplies led many fairs and carnivals across the country to shutter their gates. Sonora and Al reluctantly retired from show business, and they left Red Lips with a family friend in Texas. They moved to New Orleans, where she worked as a typist at the Lighthouse for the Blind, and he worked as a front desk manager for a hotel at night. Okay. Very, like, just fucking sad. They didn't see each other during the day. Like, they had dinner together before he Well, they didn't see each other at all. Come on. (laughs) They didn't spend time together, Hannah. Sorry, you fucking monster, you monster. Uh, And I don't know much about their remaining years together. The diving act did come back and I think went until the seventies until, you know, animal rights activists shut it down. And I'm not going to get into that. I will just say a horse isn't going to do anything. It doesn't want to do. And there were no injuries. Those horses were very well taken care of. So you know, in a battle I, between a person and a horse that doesn't want to do something, my money's on the horse. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So I, you know, I don't know if it's, you know, but whatever. Uh, Sonora did move to Pleasantville, New Jersey, which was closer. I think she moved to be closer to her sister because Al right. died in 1960 at the age of 76. Mm-hmm. He was buried at the Garden of Memories in Metairie, which is a suburb of New Orleans. Oh, yeah. Um, really simple headstone you know, just not much to it. So, so as I said, she moved to Pleasantville, New Jersey, where she died in a nursing home on September 21st, 2003 at the age of 99. Wow, man. Fucking Elsonora. I know. Like amazing. Uh, sadly, there's no information on her burial. I don't know where she wound up. Um, she did have a nephew who was quoted in, um, her obituary but that's like her sister died in 2000 and was buried at the atlantic county veteran cemetery in estelle manor new jersey um and so she has a very nice headstone but yeah there's there's no i don't know if she was cremated i don't know if she was buried they kept all of those details private which i'm i'm kind of sad you know yeah that there's no and arnett not arnett um lorena I, there's no information about what happened to Lorena Carver. 
The nineties horse girls want to go leave flowers. Right. You know? So of the original members of the diving trio, only Doc Carver has a headstone that showcases his legacy. And it is a giant ass, like it's not a headstone. It is a stone. Like a oh, rock. Wow. It is a big ass rock with a plaque that reads, quote, in memory of William Frank Carver, born May 7th. 1840 in Winslow. He was famous for his feats of markmanship and became the acknowledged world champion rifle and pistol shot of his day. He was a companion of Wild Bill Hickok and at one time an associate of Buffalo Bill Cody in show business. He died August 31st, 1927 in Sacramento, California. Oh, end quote. And the stone and plaque was erected by a local chapter of the American Legion. Oh, so yes, I know I really got detailed about that and I wanted to go no, even more. That's awesome. Yeah. I wanted to do even more because again, that movie was a highlight of my childhood. Absolutely. Of course, obsessed young girl. And uh and yeah, it's just really fucking sad what what happened mm-hmm. um to her after after they had to quit the show. It's yeah. I mean, I'm sure she lived the ha- I mean, she lived to be fucking 99 if she was right. miserable, she probably would have just died. Um, right. But yeah, it seems like um yeah, they just kind of lost their their light, and right. there's nothing, um, you know, nothing about what happened from 1960 to 19 or 2003. There's yeah. nothing, you know, that yeah. uh, they're ha- you know, it's just sad. So, yeah. you know, we're gonna find out who the lady in red is, <laughs> and. <laughs> Our next project will be to fundraise for a memorial for Sonora. Absolutely. <laughs> Heck yeah. All right. Hannah or Sheena, who's going next? Hannah. Okay. <laughs> um, get ready. Because we have no idea what Hannah's doing. Yes. So. I forgot about that. Let's be surprised. Yes. Okay. So spooky season is upon us. Yes. Sooner rather than later. It always starts in September, sometimes August. Absolutely. Um, And so you might know such classics as Psycho, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Silence of the Lambs. And while they're not direct uh, copies of a certain someone. Oh, fuck. (laughs) They are heavily inspired by one Edward Theodore Gein. <laughs> uh, I should have known. If it wasn't going to be the killer fucking clown, you were going to go. But yeah, I mean, that's, he has inspired so many horror movies. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So like, many. Classic horror movies. Absolutely. Yeah. Like genre defining horror movies. Let's so, get into it. Eddie Teddy. <laughs> Was known as the Butcher of Plainfield or the Plainfield Ghoul, who murdered two and body snatched more than that. (laughs) Gein's crimes were committed around his hometown of Plainfield, Wisconsin, and gathered widespread notoriety in 1957 after authorities discovered he had exhumed corpses from local graveyards and fashioned trophies and keepsakes. That's a nice way to put it. From their bones and skin. Two words, uh, nipple belt. Thank you. <laughs> Every time I think of him, that's what I think of. And it that is a nightmare contraption. <laughs> Just, well, we'll get into it, guys. Uh, so Gein also confessed to killing two women, Mary Hogan and Bernice Warden. Um, so he's not technically a serial killer. He's just a ghoul. Yeah. 
Gein was initially found unfit to stand trial and confined to a mental health facility, of course. Um, in 68, he was judged competent to stand trial, and they did put him on trial for Bernice Warden's murder. But he was found legally insane uh, and spent the rest of his life in the psychiatric institution um, where he died in 1984. Huh. That's a long so, time. At yeah. the age of 77, he is buried next to his family in the Plainfield Cemetery in a now unmarked grave. We'll get to that. <laughs> yep. So let's get into uh, his, his what got him caught. <laughs> so on the morning of November 16th, 1957, Plainfield hardware store owner Bernice Warden disappeared. A Plainfield resident reported that the hardware store's truck had been driven out from the rear of the building and the hardware saw few customers the entire day. Because it was the first day of deer hunting season. Oh, of course. So as those of you who've grown up in a rural area know that deer hunting season is its own official holiday. And you just, you don't see any folks around. You don't, uh, you don't see any men. That's for sure. Exactly. Bernice's son, who was a deputy sheriff, Frank Warden, entered the store at 5 p.m. to find the cash register open and bloodstains on the floor. Frank told investigators on the evening of his mother's disappearance, Ed Gein had come into the store and said he was going to come back tomorrow for a gallon of antifreeze. This was back in the day when you came in with a mason jar and you left with whatever cancer-causing right. chemical you needed. <laughs> um, and so Gein was kind of a weird guy around the town. Um, again, having grown up in a small rural area we we know this guy he's he's the weird one you think he's mostly harmless though you have your malicious weirdos and then you have your benevolent weirdo and most people thought eddie was just kind of a benevolent weirdo like they let him watch their kids like he was just like he's off but he's he's not dangerous right yeah um and he had been really just really controlled by his mother augusta um, who was low-key a psychopath. Um, she was crazy. And so his, her, both of her sons, um, Eddie was the younger, his oldest was Henry, lived with her until she died, and they were in their 40s. Um, hmm. So it, we know that family. You know that family. It's just like, mm, something's going on there. Yeah, he, was, yeah. he, he was just a little daft. Um, so they're like, Eddie Gein came in here. Well, I wonder if we saw anything um, because yeah. nobody's thinking he's going to hurt anybody. Mm-hmm. There was a sales slip for a gallon of antifreeze as the last receipt that she wrote gallon of antifreeze for a dollar. That's quite a deal. Yeah. They did arrest him at the Plainfield grocery store just to kind of get, you know, that's how they did it back in the day. What are you going to do? They went to his house, which was an absolute shit show, even without the stuff that we will talk about because much like many men, when they're left alone without female supervision, he couldn't housekeep for shit. Right. Uh, but his mama's room was immaculate. So go figure. Good job, Augusta. <laughs> Thanks for that. So when they get to his house, a County Sheriff deputy discovered warden's decapitated body in a shed on the property hung upside down by her legs with a crossbar at her ankles and ropes at her wrist. The torso was, quote, dressed out like a deer. If you've ever seen them dress animals, that's exactly how they do it, is in the crossbar X. And then, yeah, Yeah. it's a whole ass mess. And 
he had um, witnessed when he was quite young, his parents owned a grocery store and he had witnessed them butchering a hog. And that was how they did the hog butchering. And that kind of like left a mark on him. So here's some of the shit they found. (laughs) Gear up. Whole human bones and some fragments. A wastebasket made of human skin. Human skin upholstering some chairs. Skulls on each of his bedposts. Female skulls, some with the top sawn off. There was some... um, Well, we'll get to that. Bowls made from human skulls. Yeah. A corset from a female torso skinned from the shoulders to the waist. Yes, he made a lady vest. (laughs) Leggings made from human skin. Masks made from the skin of human heads. He did have (laughs) several different masks. Um, And he had made Mary Hogan's face into a mask. And that was found in a paper bag. Uh, Mary Hogan's skull in a box. Bernice Warden's entire head in a burlap sack. Bernice Warden's heart in a plastic bag in front of the potbelly stove. Now, if you don't know what a potbelly stove, it's not the one you cook on. It's the one that heats your house. Mm -hmm. So there was some, oh, he was a cannibal. No, he was not likely a cannibal. (sighs) Nine vulva shoebox. Okay. And a young girl's dress and the vulvas of two females judged to have been about 15 years old. How they judge the age of a vulva, I don't know. And I don't think I want to. No. That was what they decided. A belt made from nipples. (laughs) Four noses. A pair of lips on a window shade drawstring. Keep in mind the way he had this is so that when he closed the blinds, the lips came together. Oh, I always yeah. wonder why he had those on there. Like, what? what's yep. the point? But yeah, yep. okay. That. Yep. I hate to say it, but it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was inventive. I will give. I mean, the bowls from skulls. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lampshade made from the skin of a human face. So there you go. Fingernails. Ugh. And it says these artifacts were photographed at the state crime laboratory and then, quote, decently disposed of. So I'm assuming they were cremated. I don't know that you would bury them, but I'm going to assume that they cremated them or put in medical waste. I don't know. Yeah. When questioned, Gein told investigators that between 1947 and 1952, he made as many as 40 nocturnal visits to three graveyards to exhume recently buried bodies while he was in a days like state. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna, I, with his level of mental illness, I do think that he probably did go into a psychosis, but this was a lot of work. <laughs> Maybe so, but yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like that's a lot of work to go and dig up a body. That's right. It is. Yeah. It's a lot of work. But hey, on about 30 of those visits, he came out of the days while in the cemetery, left the grave in good order and returned home empty handed. So he Mm -hmm. he would like find himself digging and go, what the fuck am I doing? No, I think he just got tired and was like, never mind. I mean, he was getting on in years, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Grave digging's hard work. Yeah. He 
other occasions, he dug up the graves of recently buried middle-aged women he thought resembled his mother. <laughs> Mommy issues. A boy's yeah. best friend is his mother. Uh-huh. And he took the bodies home where he tanned their skins to make his paraphernalia. One of his odd jobs that he had before his mother died was a tanner. Um, keep in mind, this was back again in rural areas where things were just life was just more a little bit more gruesome than it, just daily <laughs> life was just a little bit more icky than it used to be. Gein admitted to stealing from nine graves from local cemeteries and led investigators to their locations. The caskets were inside wooden boxes and he had used them kind of as uh, walkways. Good. Yep. Since one casket was empty, one casket Gein had failed to open when he lost his pry bar. Haven't we all been there? <laughs> yeah. And most of happens. the body, I know, I'm trying to like grave rob and there goes my crowbar. <laughs> It's like the um, the last podcast uses this quote a lot, and it's it's kind of sad, and it also makes a lot of sense in that Ted Bundy said, you know, you do a crime so many times, you're so good at it, it's just like, you know, and then you lose the lug wrench one time, and you're like, fuck. Yeah. So he lost his lug wrench. <laughs> so his confession was corroborated. Soon after his mother's death, Gein had begun to create a woman's suit so that, okay, Gergeloins, so that he could, quote, become his mother to literally crawl into his skin. Ugh, yuck, yuck, yuck. Gein yuck. denied having sex with the bodies he exhumed, explaining they smelled too bad, which points to you, Ed, points <laughs> to you. I've always wondered, and I've never done a deep dive on Gein, so, but I always wondered if he even did because if he ever had sex, because I figured no, his mother, not likely. Not I figured likely his mother put so many ideas in his head that he just his never did. His mom was extremely anti-sex. Yes, so yes, she, I knew that much. Yeah, she very <clears> much <throat> told them, and like, there's one Bible quote that she always read to them from the Bible that was about like, it was probably from one of the books of David where he's talking about like genital sores, you know? Yeah. Um. So it was just nasty. And so, yeah. and the thing about this that really sticks out like with like becoming his mother and wanting to have like a woman suit was number one, his mom was really the only point of reference for womanhood. Yeah, he really exactly. had. Yeah. His other points of reference were like those awful like pulp magazines from back in yeah. the day that were just icky um and like adventure magazines that again were just rape and murder yeah um so those were his only points of reference for like what womanhood was exactly and then also he was the second born and his mother had wanted him to be a girl and like we see with lots of you know serial killers other ghoulish humans is they will their moms or their family will degender like misgender them right um it happened with manson his uncle yeah. to punish him put him in a dress and made him walk to school um because he said he was being a little bitch yeah. which he might have been but he probably was but you don't <laughs> but do that because don't being do a woman that. is not a punishment exactly exactly and so but that i mean and that's part of it too is like he wanted to be feminine, but at the same time, he has all this messaging that being feminine is bad. Sex yeah. is bad. All of these things are bad. I mean, so he's collecting these vulvas because it's such an indicator of 
not to be cisgendered about it, but in the fifties, that was a very, yeah, that's very much womanhood. And so there's this very weird dichotomy with that. And it really yeah. comes out in the Buffalo Bill character inside yeah, of the lambs is yeah. because he wanted to be a woman. Not to say Gein was trans. We don't know that. No, I don't think you he know. was. I mean, of course, I don't know him, but. Right. And I mean, it's kind <laughs> of like of the whole. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's kind of like the Buffalo Bill thing. Like, I, I, you know, if you want to be a woman, have you just arguments. live your life as a woman. I don't right. think Buffalo Bill was trans or wanted to I be have a woman. I have that same. And there's a lot of, you know, yeah. kind of woke discourse about oh we shouldn't be because buffalo bill was a trans character that they were demonizing no buffalo bill was a serial killer that they were demonizing yeah i don't i never it wasn't, got the it had impression he was trans, being trans at trans. all no well remember because he uh um hannibal lecter mentions that he you know would have been turned down right right he was turned yeah. down for surgery for, because he wasn't right he wasn't psychologically yeah yeah and so and that i mean i think yeah it's it's and buffalo bills as well was very sexualized like extremely Mm -hmm. sexualized as far as like femininity and womanhood Mm -hmm. goes so i don't know again that is that is discourse that is well above my pay grade however (laughs) so but that was his his whole thing and like the story of ed gein is awful and very sad yeah. as well. Uh, Gein also admitted to shooting Mary Hogan, um, who was a tavern owner. Um, so she was killed first, and then um, Bernice Warden was killed. Um, these are both women that were big, brusque, business-owning ladies who mm-hmm. were very similar to his mom. Um, Mary Hogan, he kind of had a fascination for because his mom. It was somebody his mom would call a hoe, or you know, oh, a thought, you know. His mom wouldn't have called her a thought, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, so that was like definitely a very, you know, there's some issues there. I know Ed Gein is terrible, but his mother was his mother was a piece of shit, like hot garbage. I am so glad she's dead, and I feel terrible saying that. But God, what a terrible human! So, if you haven't listened to the last podcast um, series on Gein, you absolutely should. It is fantastic. Very well done. Augusta, how she ended up dying was her and Eddie went out to pick up like hay or something from somebody and they saw the guy's friend with benefits there and they were fighting and arguing and the dude actually like kicked a dog to death like god but what sent Augusta into just an absolute rage was that they were clearly fucking and not married and she got oh, into God, such a rage that she gave herself a stroke. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Mind All your because, own business. Exactly. Exactly. And she was just like, I'm like, I want to know Augusta's childhood because homegirl had some issues. Apparently. I'm not victim blaming. Well, she died of a stroke, so she's fine. Um, but yeah. There's, I'm like, she, she created the she monster. Created, that yes. Was I mean, yeah, and she, she basically... Did. She fucked up both boys. Right. Um, Henry died of suspicious circumstances. He was very likely he was Ed Gein's first victim um, because he took him right to the body. It was really weird how that worked out. Um, But I mean, she basically just destroyed two lives and then ended up because she was such a judgmental whore. So, you know, and I don't mean that in a nice way. She was a bitch. 
fuck you, Augusta, wherever you are. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, she just, yeah, this issues. And then his dad was kind of a non, non-starter. Like he was just, he was a drunk and he was useless. Yeah. And so, um, and there was another last podcast on the references when he was talking about Israel Keys. Henry said, lame daddies cause a lot of problems. I'm they like, do. They <laughs> do. Like, a, a really uh, awful mom and just a just a non-existent dad. <laughs> I will say this, though, real quickly. Yes, your parents can mess you up and be terrible people, but at the but same you time, make take choices. responsibility yep, for absolutely. your own choices. So he's still, I mean, oh, she yeah, did he's ruin still, human beings, we are, but yeah. he... Yeah, yeah. We you are, know what I'm saying. Yes. Exactly. And it was really a tragedy from the jump because he yeah. really just didn't have any chance. You know, no, not at all. So it's just tragic across the board. And much like all town weirdos, he did have a little 16 year old friend. Um, the town weirdo always has a little toady who's yeah. also primed to become the town weirdo. He reported that Ed Gein kept shrunken heads in his house, <laughs> which Ed Gein had described as relics from the Philippines that a cousin had sent when they served there in World War II. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, sure, yeah. sure. sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which that did happen when we yeah. were over there causing havoc and discord. Yeah. He was considered a suspect of uh, a woman named Evelyn Hartley and her disappearance, but they never found any evidence to conclusively define that. So is what it is. Uh, Gein would die at the Mendota Mental Health Institute due to respiratory failure secondary to lung cancer on July 26, 1984, at the age of 77. Over the years, souvenir seekers had chipped pieces from his gravestone at the Plainfield Cemetery until the stone itself was stolen in 2000. <laughs> yep. It was recovered in June 2001 near Seattle, Washington. What the wow. fuck? That's a heavy thing to just be toting around right (laughs) to sound like a total redneck there but i mean you know that's heavy (laughs) and it is now locked in the storage at the washera i'm not pronouncing that right county sheriff's department i'm surprised it's not at one of those crime museums yeah me too. i'm surprised yeah that the museum of death hasn't gotten a hold of it um the gravesite itself is now unmarked but not unknown he is buried yep. between his parents and his brother so they know where he is he just doesn't have a stone so I was going to say I just it. saw a post on one of those cemetery groups that I'm in on Facebook that was like right here and someone was like pointing at it and I was yeah, like right. yes I think we all know exactly where he's buried my dude Yeah and shortly after he was arrested and put on in you know put into the funny farm um they burned the house down um good Nobody knows who did it, but the house did go up in flames. And that is the epic, epic story (laughs) of Eddie Teddy Gein. Go listen to the last podcast series on it. It is so, so good. It's very Um, good. It is incredibly well done. And you, I mean, I don't have sympathy for killers, but you, you just, it's one of those that like you see the train on the tracks and you're like, ah, oh, fuck <laughs> that. There's only one place that's going. And it was just absolute, you know, he had, he stood no chance. He just, it was a terrible, terrible existence to grow up in nowadays. Yeah. He probably would have just watched weird porn and that's fine. And like <laughs> left mean comments on hentai videos. But back in the day that that was, you know, 
that was what it was. So, but yeah, there's when you, yeah. So, um, some of the elements that you see in psycho is the mother. Mm -hmm. Um, he didn't keep his mother's body, but her room was spotless. Her room, the rest of the house was a fucking, the butter museum on meth. Yeah. But her room was just immaculate and he actually had boarded up her door. Um, and in fact, when the cops got there and they're like, okay, all of this shit is in the living room. What the fuck is behind that door? <laughs> like, what does he got boarded up? And it was his mom's room. Just absolutely yeah. perfect. Um, so that was the psycho element. Um, uh, Silence of the Lambs. We discussed Silence mm-hmm. of the Lambs is a great movie. If you haven't seen it, please see it. It's awesome. Um, and then Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where they would make things out of, you know, yeah. body parts and human skin and stuff like that. Um, that movie has had so many reiterations over the yeah. years. Um, Just watch the original. Yeah, the original and then the sequel are both very good. They're very cheesy. It's high, yeah. high camp. It's don't awesome. watch yeah, it's the one with Renee Zellweger. Yes, <laughs> they have oh been trying God. to bury that one for years and for good reason because it sucks. And it I is think trash. they crash. I believe they came out with a new one not long ago. I think so. I can't I just, always, There is always a new one. There's yeah. I don't have the appetite for gory slashers that I did as a teenager. So I just don't have yeah. the inner. I didn't see like the last. I saw the Halloween kills that came out in like 2019. The newer yeah. Halloween. I haven't seen any of the other ones because I'm just like, I don't have the mental energy for gore right now. I don't, so. I don't either. And yeah, the, the last Halloween that came out, I mean, I did see it, even the trailer, like the kills that they included in the trailer. I was like, this is too much. Well, I didn't like the latest Halloween because it felt like the whole, and, and it's sort of like what you were talking about at the beginning. Um, yeah. I felt like the whole city was being attacked. And um, yeah. there's this very much this moment of everybody being crowded in the hospital and you don't know where he is. And yeah, it was just upsetting. And I'm like, yeah, I don't need I that just, kind of anxiety. Yeah. I'm already anxious. Um, yeah. So it was a little much for me. I have not heard a lot of people say very nice things about it, but yeah, you know, the one in 2019 was great. I loved, I loved that. I thought yeah, that I thought was, was great. great. Um, I refuse to acknowledge the Rob, Rob zombie version. <laughs> Fight me. Um, he did one good movie. It was Lords of Salem, and that was it. Um, <laughs> I'm not even going to talk about the Devil's Rejects because there's like a rape scene in the first 15 yeah. minutes, and I was like, okay, well, I'm not watching this. That's nope. just that is nope. just torture porn, and I yeah, I'm not doing it. I don't. I love horror movies. The best horror movie ever made, Fight Me, is The Descent. Yeah, uh, but I cannot handle torture porn it's it's I not, can't. that was it. like i tried to watch hostile and i was like i can't nope. do this and i hope he does not ruin the monsters for me i'm tired of his wife being and everything i'm sorry bitch can't yeah. act yeah she can't <laughs> act and hers lily monster pisses me off i'm not yeah. gonna lie yeah yeah so not, not thrilled about that so we'll we'll see how badly he fucks up the monsters so <laughs> absolutely so now that i got us primed for spooky season Gina. i know your yeah. last one. Take us Mine home, is a baby. ghost story. Mine ah, is a ghost we, story. We didn't even plan it like that. We guys. didn't even plan Yay. it. Um, it is based on a classic movie that I love. And I will say this briefly. I almost did the real story behind one of my favorite movies that is terrifying and not necessarily a horror movie, but it's terrifying. The Night of the Hunter starring Robert Mitchum. Um, Lillian Gish is in that too. Gish of, you oh, know, yeah. Gish. Um, 
It's a terrifying movie. Um, I haven't, where he, I've heard somebody I, oh, really, so a good. podcast I was listening to recently was like, that's actually a really good movie. I'm it's like, okay, terrifying. It um, it's Robert Mitchum as a messed up evil preacher who is chasing these two kids and it's, oh. he's relentless and it's terrifying and amazing. And it's based on a guy who did some of the same stuff that Robert Mitchum's character did, but I don't know. I just, I wanted to do this one because for one, I've always liked the movie and then it's a ghost story. There was a great segment on it on unsolved mysteries. So here we go. Picture it. July 11th, 1906, big <gasps> moose Lake, New York. Okay. Okay. Don't, I don't, don't spoil it. I'm not, I'm about to spoil it in a way. Okay. Uh, so 20-year-old Grace Brown, who is a few months pregnant, and her 22-year-old boyfriend, Chester Gillette, were enjoying a romantic boat ride on the lake. Until Chester hit Grace over the head with a tennis racket, she fell out of the boat, and he left her to drown. Uh, this murder and, tr- and Chester's trial and execution inspired novels, a play, a song, and two films including the movie that won the first ever Golden Globe Award for Best Motion Picture Drama. So, who are Grace and Chester? The well, movie let's... is A Place in the Sun, by the way. Yes, it is. <laughs> Elizabeth Taylor, right? Yeah. Yes, Elizabeth Taylor. Taylor. Yes. Yeah. Um, and we'll get to that. We're going to go through the actual story, and then we'll get to the many different yeah, versions iterations. of the story. Thank you. That's my word. <laughs> so Grace May Brown was born March 20th, 1886. Aww. She is a Pisces. Yeah. Um, Almost in, a birthday twin. Yeah. In South Atelic. Uh, uh, Astelic. I said that wrong. Astelic. It, it's a place up north. Uh, <laughs> it does not roll off of my southern tongue very easily. New so. York State, I believe. Yeah, it's in New York. Um, so she was, uh, the middle child of a successful dairy farmer and his wife. Uh, they seemed to have a normal upbringing doing whatever you did in the late 1800s. <laughs> I don't know. There wasn't a lot about her early life. Um, and at the age of 18, she moved to Cortland, which was a nearby city to live with her married sister, Ada, and to work at the new Gillette skirt factory. Now is Gillette skirt factory and Chester G- Gillette, are they kin to, Gillette like razors I don't know I don't <laughs> I think I didn't so find, I didn't find a connection anywhere and you would have thought if there was a connection they would have been like oh this is you know kin to yeah. the I Gillette think razors the I don't Gillette think so. razors were actually uh German immigrants so and 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 his family could have been and I just didn't do the research I have no idea yeah. but I don't think they're kin no meanwhile Chester Gillette uh was born August 9th 1883 this makes him a Leo uh, in Montana, but he spent part of his childhood in Spokane, Washington. His parents made good money, but they were weirdo religious, so they gave up all of their material wealth to join the Salvation Army. <laughs> Do not get me started on the Salvation yes. Army. They are Everyone deeply evil. Everyone forgets that they're a religion. Deeply, deeply evil. Um, for one thing, they hate gay folks and trans folks, so you mm-hmm. automatically are evil in my book if you don't like anyone in the Alphabet Mafia. But also, uh, my grandmother went there asking for help once because my grandfather was a piece of crap, and they turned her away, so they can really suck it. Anyway, yeah, they will personal turn vendetta people against away them. from their shelters. Yeah, so I mean, do I mean not your husband's an alcoholic. Army. Your husband's an alcoholic. You don't get any help. 
Yep. Okay, thanks. Fuck them. Okay, anyway, <laughs> I hope they rot. Anyway, so Chester and his family moved around the country while he grew up. Um, he wasn't anywhere as religious, anywhere near as religious as his parents. I think he was religious, but not like them. Like they were not so religious. Uh, he wasn't too religious. No, he really wasn't. I mean, they did ask him to to lead a uh, um, Sunday school class, you know, about the time that he committed this murder. So mm-hmm. he was still kind of religious, but not really. He, he was, was there in body, but not there in spirit. Yeah. Like a lot of people. And he anyway. was really into the premarital fornication. Oh, we're getting to that. So anyway, he did attend a prestigious prep school thanks to a wealthy uncle, but he left after a couple of years because I have a feeling he did not appreciate things. Um, and then he worked a couple of odd jobs until he got a position at another wealthy uncle's skirt factory in Cortland, New York. Um, so nepotism, baby. Yes. Mm-hmm. So this is where Grace and Chester meet working at that skirt factory. Uh, they hit it off. They start dating. And from what I can gather about Grace, and you really get this impression in A Place in the Sun, um, is she was just really young and naive. I don't think she had dated a lot of guys. And she really thought they were just madly in love with each other. And I think he just wanted one thing and one thing only. Booty. Mm-hmm. So they did a little more than just date. And like I like to say, there were birds, there were bees, and there was a baby. Yeah. So in the spring of 1906, Grace told Chester she was pregnant and they needed to get married right away. And she kind of thought they they this is what their relationship was heading toward anyway, which I think is why she probably agreed to Had sleep sex with, him. with him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know what ex- excuses he gave her, but he kept putting her off. So she was constantly pressuring him either in person, even at work, they would have fights at work about it or through letters. Um, at one point she moved back home with her parents, but she ended up going back to Portland when she found out that Chester was seeing other girls. Are we oh. shocked? More like a skirt so, chaser. Am I right? Yes, exactly. Sh- Thank you. Good one. Good one, Hannah. Rimshot noise, please, Derek. (laughs) Uh, Chester kept making these vague promises about the future together. And she was like, yeah, okay, but when's it going to happen? And then he said, we're going to go on a trip soon. And I think Grace may have believed that they were going to run away and get married. So Chester made plans for them to visit the Adirondack. I can't say that word. Adirondack. Thank you. And it's a dumb word i'm sorry no i shouldn't say that it's probably like native american it is oh god it's so it's not dumb i'm just a, a ignorant redneck there don't i'm calling myself Sheena. out she's southern yeah she's i just nice. I, don't, I don't go up north y'all sorry i mean not because i don't want to it's just i ain't got the money anyway i'm just showing my my southern poor colors anyway in new york they go to the mountains in new york okay uh, Chester registered the couple under a fake name, but with his same initials, so they would match his suitcase. So he thought at least about a little bit of this, but not much really. Um, but he carried his own suitcase with his initials on it and a tennis racket because, you know, everywhere you got to go, you got to take a tennis racket. I Damn guess. right. So on July 11th, uh, the pair took that ill-fated boat trip that I mentioned earlier. Um, she had a lot of injuries to her head and face. And then they think he, she either fell out or he pushed her out of the boat and she drowned. So the overturned rowboat was found in the lake. 
Um, and then the next day they found Grace's body. Uh, there was no sign of Chester. They found his hat. I think um, it, it had either washed up on shore or was on the shore. And so they thought both of them drowned. And of course, this was a rented boat. So the guy that they rented the boat from was like, oh, yeah, this couple came out and they never came back, you know. Um, so, yeah, so Grace's body was found the next day. Chester was not found. Um, what he did, because he is a deeply stupid man, he had walked through the woods with his suitcase because, yes, he took his suitcase with him um, on this boat ride, as you would toward the Fulton chain lakes and he checked into a hotel under his real name i just i anyway the autopsy um revealed that grace had suffered major head trauma Mm. so it went from an accidental drowning to a case of homicide and of course then chester was quickly found and arrested now chester had this wealthy uncle that owned the skirt factory right but he refused to pay for his nephew's defense (laughs) which i kind of like you on your own. Um, Chester had court appointed ator- attorneys, and they claimed that Grace uh, completed suicide, and that Chester was just there. She banged her own head. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, so which they were like, oh, she was so upset because she was pregnant and her reputation was ruined. Blah blah blah. I'm like, well, you could have just married her, but anyway, uh, or not fucked she- her. How about that? Yeah. yeah, that too. Um, anyway, the jury obviously did not buy it. He was convicted of murder and given the death sentence. Uh, Chester was 24 when he was executed by the electric chair on March 30th, 1908, 10 days after what would have been Grace's 22nd birthday. Can I tell um, you a really fun detail about the trial? Yes. So they brought in her womb and the fetus in a jar full of uh, like chloroform to what? show to the jury Ew. yeah you're welcome yeah i'm I, just I, all I, about body parts today yes, <laughs> you are. apparently you are <laughs> thanks um, hannah <laughs> you're welcome and and by the way from what i saw in some of the coverage um i think the couple only knew each other for like six months like they this was not some long years long it was a courtship. whirlwind kind this of was thing. very quick from meeting a guy and thinking, oh, this is a great romance to you're dead in six months. I mean, that's just wild. And haven't we all in our early twenties <gasps> met a guy yes. and been like, oh, this is the one. Yes. Trust me. It's, that it's never the one. It's Not never. at that age. No, never. You know what? Most men probably aren't the one. Anyway, I'm having, <laughs> yeah, Sheena, Sheena's cynical today. Um, so this whole entire case spawned books and movies and more. Um, in 1925, Theodore Dreiser's novel, An American Tragedy, was released. And it's based on the story of Chester and Grace, but it it's a fictionalized version. Mm-hmm. And he really plays up the whole story that Chester was seeing other women, specifically a beautiful young socialite. Mm -hmm. Now in real life, there were rumors that Chester was dating a beautiful young, wealthy woman named Harriet Benedict, but she denied it and even put out a formal press release saying she knew him, but did not date him and was never engaged to him. She said, my name is Bennett and I ain't in it. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So the novel, An American Tragedy, was turned into a play in 1926 and then into a film in 1931. It starred Phillips Holmes, uh, Sylvia Sidney, who most of us know as the undead caseworker Juno in Beetlejuice. (laughs) I love that. And Francis D. Um, The film got mixed reviews. It didn't really do that great. 
But if you're a classic movie fan, then yes, you know the 1951 version, A Place in the Sun, stars as Montgomery Clift is uh, Chester, but of course they have fake names in the movie. Not fake, but you know what I mean, made up. Elizabeth Taylor is the supposedly wealthy socialite he was dating and Shelly Winters is the Grace character. They made her like um, a shrew. It was so upsetting. They really, you know, I remember when I first watched it, I thought she was such an annoying, nagging character. But when I watched it, I watched it again this week and I was like, no, she's scared and desperate. Like, right. He yeah, got her if, pregnant. If you are pregnant in 1906 and you're unwed, there goes your whole life. And I'm like, people can say oh she's nagging and annoying him i'm like no she's trying to save her own reputation so mm-hmm. and i figure grace probably acted the same way because she was trying to do the right thing and you know all this anyway yeah. um but what's interesting is raymond burr is the prosecuting attorney in the movie too and it's that role that basically leads him to later be cast as perry mason mm-hmm. so gotta love you some raymond burr <laughs> Uh, the movie was directed by George Stevens, who also directed the um, Diary of Anne Frank and Giant, another um, Elizabeth Taylor movie. A Place in the Sun was a huge success, both commercially and critically. It won six Academy Awards um, for Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Costume Design for Edith Head, who I need to cover on this podcast. Yes. Um, Elizabeth Taylor's white dress from the movie um, it's a white dress it sort of poofs out of the bottom I'm not a fashion person I don't know how to say all this <laughs> and it has like flowers around like the bodice that became like when you see teenage girls going to prom in the 50s it's based on that dress that dress that style just became huge and everyone wanted to look like Elizabeth Taylor which who doesn't want to look like Elizabeth Taylor of course Taylor? yeah um and then yes it won the first ever golden globe award for best motion picture or drama and in 1991 the movie was selected for preservation by the u.s film registry by the library of congress um one more thing to say about shelly winters before i move on um she's also in the night of the hunter there is a famous famous scene from that movie it, regards to her that if you see the movie you'll be like oh god that's it it's really creepy but also in the 80s this is just a, a total departure from what i'm talking about um beloved amazing perfect human debbie reynolds made a workout video and her best friend was shelly winters <laughs> and so shelly winters who i think i want her to be my best friend is in the back because she's just not having it <laughs> up at the front debbie reynolds is being debbie reynolds she's cute she's perky she's encouraging you to work out and shelly winters is in the back either just sitting there or making rude comments or <laughs> just trolling debbie reynolds the whole time and she's wearing a sweatshirt that says i'm only here for debbie or something <laughs> like that like you know and debbie will see her just sitting there she'll be like come on shelly do whatever and so she'll like half-heartedly make an attempt to do some of it it's the best thing that's all on youtube please go look up debbie reynolds workout she video was um shelly winters was so great in the original poseidon adventure yeah I, she's a great woman i think mm-hmm. i want to be her best friend um but anyway yes in 1995 unsolved mysteries a- aired a segment a- about the uh, grace brown murder obviously because they knew who did it but no um it's because there are claims that the lake and surrounding cabins are haunted by Grace's ghost. Yes. So I'm like, yes, Grace, get out there and haunt some people. Um, I did also found a murder ballot about the case called the Ballad of Big Moose Lake. I love me a good murder ballad. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Um, Grace Brown is buried in Valley View Cemetery in her hometown in New York that I'm not going to try to pronounce again, <laughs> alongside her family. Um, her marker bears her name, her years, and it reads at rest. Um, when I looked at the cemetery, it looks like she's the only notable person okay. buried there. So no events to everyone else, but y'all aren't as cool as Grace Brown. Yeah. Clearly. And then Chester Gillette is buried at, I think this is Soul Cemetery in Senate, New York. It's unmarked. And I can't find that anyone he knows or was kin to is buried there. I think they're all buried elsewhere. They're like, so. let's just like, put yeah. him in there. Yeah, I think they were just pretty well like, yeah, well, he murdered his girlfriend. So we're just going to throw him in the ground. And I'm like, yes, yeah. that's better than he deserves. We don't but, know yeah. her. Yeah, basically. <laughs> they Mariah carried him. She doesn't sure. even go here. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> so that is the story of A Place in the Sun. Um, it is, I rented it from Amazon for like three or four dollars. It's worth every penny it's a great movie um i mean it, it does very much feel like it was made in 1951 as you can imagine right um but i i still i enjoyed it and like i said please don't think of shelly winter's character as being like oh, married me and be like no dude you did this you're responsible marry me do the, the right thing right because yeah it, but elizabeth taylor yeah her character never technically existed she's just there to be pretty yeah there <laughs> so, you go and she is she's very beautiful yeah so yes, so. a place in the sun on Amazon. Yep. Wild hearts can't be broken. Disney Plus. You can a see all the egg- of egg <laughs> movies all the everywhere. They're on everything. <laughs> and and Jeremy by Pearl Jam is streaming everywhere. And yes. yeah, the videos on YouTube. And there's all videos are. There's also a, a an Ed Gein movie. I haven't seen. It. I've never it's, seen it because I, I think it's one of those cheap it's cheap yeah it's not the the only like the lady who plays his mother is uh plays lane frost's mother in okay and that's that i mean it's yeah i watched it with my mom when i was in high school and yeah yeah Yeah, that's uncomfortable yeah yeah all right so our next episode is local legends you know them you love them the the stories that may or may not be real from your hometowns and actually Um, send us yours we'll yes we'll mention them them on the show yes cemetery row pod at gmail.com and we're on social where uh i didn't even plan that we're 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 on facebook instagram and twitter at cemetery row pod you are more than welcome to send us a message there uh probably better than the email but because i don't check (laughs) the email as often as i should uh but yes on facebook instagram twitter at cemetery row pod email is cemetery row pod at gmail.com and we want your stories please please we're gonna run out of ideas eventually right <laughs> you're just gonna get a bunch of grab bags okay yes, right yes. It'll just although be our grab bags need random really stories yes. yeah so um so yeah so up next we have local legends because we are sliding into spooky season yes. so i hope y'all are having a spooktacular time a corntastic yes. day and <laughs> come i love that kid i'm telling you all right anything else ladies or is that it i think I that's think it that's it all right Thanks for tuning in. Bye. Bye.